What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Women in the United States of America make only 77 cents for what men doing the same job make. He said, you could argue that money is more important for men. Five men are testifying on women's health. Where are the women? Is there a war on women? And if there is, what does it look like? Hello, and welcome back to Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host as always. That clip you just heard is from the new doc, Equal Means Equal, directed by actress, filmmaker, and activist Campbell Lopez, which advocates hard for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, which would serve to finally protect women under constitutional law. You'll hear my chat with Lopez a bit later on in the show, but first, we're going to open today with a discussion about something I've been anticipating for a really, really long time, Donald Glover's new off-kilter half-hour comedy on FX, Atlanta. I'm lucky enough to have joining me today from California, Kara Brown, someone I've admired from afar for some time now as a writer of smart and funny words over at Jezebel. She knows a lot about such esteemed topics as the Kardashians, Beyonce and Solange, and is also great at examining the intersection of pop culture with race and gender. Hey, Kara, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Cool. And today we're going to talk about Atlanta, which I loved and I've been anticipating for a really long time. And what were your first impressions on it? I really enjoyed it. So I actually wasn't completely sure what the show was going to be about. I had seen the trailer, which was super abstract and didn't really tell you much about it. the premise of the show. And um, I live in Los Angeles, so there's all these billboards. And I'd seen the promo billboards with the peaches and Donald Glover. And I was just like, I don't know what this is going to be about, but I'm excited. And I I don't, I don't want to say I was pleasantly surprised because I wasn't expecting it not to be good, but it was even better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who fall into either one or two camps when it comes to Donald Glover. There are those who... Mm-hmm 
uh, really like him. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there are those who are, they, they just, they don't fuck with him. It's like you, he, yeah. he's too weird or he seems a little too uh, special snowflake in terms right. of uh, racial identity. Which camp do you, gener- did you fall in before Atlanta? Before Atlanta, I was probably the latter. I don't, I don't want to say that I hated him. I probably just, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I would have called myself like a fan um, I liked him fine, but yeah, he, it felt like all of the interviews I'd heard from him or a lot of just the messages I heard from him were the sort of, you know, I was the black kid who talked white and I liked comic books, which there are thousands of black kids who, <laughs> who would describe themselves that way. And it's not special. It's just a different type of black experience that a lot of other people have as well. And when I look back at that, you know, he was pretty young, at least when I remember him saying those things and when I remember reading them. So, you know, maybe he's evolved since then. I don't know. But thinking of the Donald Glover that I knew before, and I think of like Childish Gambino, and then seeing the show that he's made now, they seem to me like very different people. Right. I mean, he's, I think he's 32 now. So yeah, when he was sort of doing and talking about these things. Like, I, I guess I would consider myself, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of his. Like, I have been, mm-hmm. ever since Community, Community was when he first came on my, my radar. He played a former, fo- like, high school footballer named Troy Barnes, who actually evolved from the first season into the later seasons as more of just, like, a total nerd and geek. And I loved him on that show. And then I discovered he had a rap alter ego, Childish Gambino. And I actually really, I really liked his first studio album, Camp, though Mm -hmm. there were tons of that sort of othering of himself within that, that album where he talks about, like you said, being the only black kid around who knew all of these obscure things or who really understood white culture and and feeling like everyone was picking on him because he was a black kid who liked these things which Mm -hmm. i think uh it's it's easy to fall into that but i think also it's easy to completely obsess over that and then treat yourself as this try to make yourself seem quote-unquote better than than other black people oh i don't i don't do that sort of thing um but yeah i agree that he has sort of evolved yeah i think it's it's interesting because, you know, in this kind of era of wokeness and like being aware of that, I think there are probably a lot of, you know, I mean, there are probably things that I thought and wrote years ago that I would look back now and definitely would cringe. And same with yeah. celebrities, you know, and with celebrities, it's all on more records than luckily the stuff that I was saying and doing. But I think you can track that with a like a few people like this, where maybe that's the way they thought then, but with the internet and maybe more access to the, to ideas and, and kind of this re, I don't know if I'd call it a resurgence, but you know, I think of like black Twitter and, and things that come out of that and that awareness. I think Beyonce is probably another example. Like you look back at her old albums and she's saying stuff that's like, Ew. and then <laughs> you see where she is now. And, and it really is an evolution. And so I would like to think that, um, that's what's happened with Donald Glover. Yeah. And so let's get into Atlanta, which mm-hmm. is a, it's a half hour sitcom and I've seen it compared to, well, the thing is, is the thing about it is that it's hard to put your finger on what exactly it is. I feel like it's right. it's very much a a show that is very much about a place and location, probably mm-hmm. more than anything else, and the characters that fill that place and location. And I am not 
from Atlanta. I am not even from the South. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have family from the South, but I, I yeah. not, did not grow up there. But even without knowing all the particulars that I know a lot of Atlanta folks have picked up on from watching it and, and seeing people talk about it on Twitter and, and reviewing it, I can still sense that this is a very specific place and he did his due diligence in depicting the characters that take up the space. Yeah, totally. There's there's a vibe to it that I don't know that I could put my finger on. I, I've spent some time in Atlanta. My sister went to college there. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not from there as well. I haven't spent a great deal of time there. But there's this vibe that you get what he's going for and, and it works. And yeah. it's hard for me to even just put into words what that is. But it's not and it's not the type of Atlanta that you've seen. You know, when you think of like rappers for other rappers from Atlanta, because there's a rapper in the show and or, you know, you're thinking of like Magic City and Drake going to Atlanta or just all of these other like or love and hip hop Atlanta, yeah. you know, and it's a it's in it. I don't want to say it's more authentic because I think that those other experiences are probably as authentic to some degree as this. But there's clearly a very specific like vibe of Atlanta that he was going for. And and he nailed it, I think. They yeah. all nailed it. Yeah, for sure. So the characters we have are Donald Glover as Ern, who is he went to Princeton and now is obviously not at Princeton anymore and he's but he grew up in Atlanta. And true to sort of the Donald Glover persona, <laughs> he he's there. He's he's from there, but he's not of there. He feels he also feels sort of out of place. And this time instead of he feels out of place within the more entrenched black hip-hop culture Mm -hmm. but he wants to get into that because he realizes his cousin paperboy who is played by brian tyree henry he's become this sort of the local hip-hop phenomenon and everyone loves his very the the song is freaking catchy it's catchy It's like it's like drip drop with Empire, where you're like, I yes. know that this is just made for the show, and it's meant to be a bit of a satire. But I'm like, I don't know, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, drip drop is a perfect, perfect example because yeah, it, it, it got stuck in my head. I, I'm I can hear it now, paper boy, paper boy. Yeah. I, get, I don't even know the words, but it's just it's great. So he becomes this this phenomenon, and he. Uh, Paperboy also has his sort of right-hand man. Paperboy, when he's not a local rapper, he's also a drug dealer. And so Darius, played by Keith Stanfield, who I have to say, I've seen him in a bunch of stuff now in mm-hmm. in bit parts. And every time I see him, he steals a scene. He was uh, mm-hmm. he was in he had a small part in Miles Ahead, the Don Cheadle movie earlier this year. And okay. it's it's a weird weird movie, worth seeing, I think. But he just he has this energy to him. He he's, he plays this sort of stoner type who makes these weird off kilter just isms and 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 spouts them. But he also it seems like they're fleshing him out really well. And right. he just his his delivery is kind of perfect. I love it. He, he's like that deep stoner, but he doesn't seem hacky and it doesn't seem stupid. Like something about like the you know when he's just it is very much like that character where he's kind of in the background and he'll just add something and he's super high and you're like, Oh, haha, the, the stone dude said something funny, but also like ironically very deep and poignant about something, but it doesn't feel like a cliche and it doesn't feel, it's like, yeah, I could, 
he seems introspective and like smart. He just smokes a lot of weed. Yeah. And I think that's that's a good thing to point to is that uh, latching on to that sort of darkness, because despite this being a funny show, this is also still Mm -hmm. Donald Glover and and Donald Glover, (laughs) as much as I love him, he also has a very sad sort of feeling to him in general. He just feels very lonely in many ways. And so that definitely, you definitely feel that across the show. Even Paperboy in the either in the second episode, when he notices some young kids playing with got like toy guns and one of them is like I'm paper boy and his mom goes over and she's like I told you not to play with them and then paper boy just kind of shows up and he's like kids you really shouldn't play with these things yeah. <laughs> and she's like who are you he's like I'm paper boy and one of them calls him paper man and he the look <laughs> on his face he's just like it's paper boy and I just love that that little I don't know. There's just these little quirks. They're all, they're really good actors, too. I think that for me, at least, it's really dependent on the acting, right? Because the dialogue is funny, but then to also capture the way we live our lives, right? Where like we say funny things all the time, but like life can be kind of rough. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it comes through with these guys being really good actors where it feels like, oh, yeah, like I can recognize that this situation is like pretty bleak, but someone said something funny and like responding the right way. And I've seen some shows recently and like I just feel like the acting is not there I mean you and can either... you can name names if you want well <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to name the name of the actors but if you want to name the show um I'll I'll, I'll defer for now <laughs> okay fair enough <laughs> yeah the other thing too with you know what you're talking about with this feeling of like loneliness and sadness with him it's you know you have these black kids who maybe like didn't grow up in the South, but they have family there. Or maybe they like, you know, you went to a private school and maybe your cousins didn't. And you're still, it's still your family and you're still black and you're still connected to that culture, but you're not, it's not even, you're not quite the same. Your experience has just been shaped differently. And so I think he, that's one of the things watching Atlanta where you're like, okay, this, this is his home and these are his people. And this is where he wants to be, or this is what he's trying to do. But he's, you know, his cousin didn't go to Princeton and something about that makes him a little different, not a different type of black person, just a black person with a different experience. And I think that there are probably a good amount of millennials and um, just black youths who feel very similarly, similarly to that kind of, I guess, maybe feeling of otherness um, that he's trying to depict. Right. I mean, I feel like this is a trope that goes back, you can goes many, many years back, probably mm-hmm. as far back as maybe Reconstruction when black people were no longer slaves. I mean, I guess you could even say during slavery, but there is this this, yeah. this sense of, especially within when you think about after the Great Migration and moving into the 70s and 80s, and even now, you have this constant within different movies and TV shows, this constant struggle this real life struggle of between the old and and moving forward and sort of the south like the south is considered in many ways just backwards or sl- slower to progress mm-hmm. and when those descendants of of people from the south move quote unquote move on up and go to princeton or go to these move to the north or, or just move mm-hmm. up in life in general there's that sort of that uneasy tension between those two sides of how do you honor where you came from but then you know, admit where you are now. And Mm -hmm. so it seems like that's something that's very much happening in Atlanta. And 
to kind of circle back to the idea of Donald Glover sort of evolving, remember Brown did a profile uh, on Glover for Vulture or New York Mag. And in it, it opens up with Donald saying that like he wanted to let everyone know that let white people know that they don't know everything about black culture, which Mm -hmm. I think is very telling in a way because it it seems like he's been pushed to the point now where there was one point where he may have felt as though he was that special snow snowflake but then Mm -hmm. and and it it happens in the first episode too you see it where Mm -hmm. he's like reconnecting with someone i think either from high school or college this white kid and he's trying to yeah and he's trying to get into his this white kid or white guy now he works at a a radio station and he's trying to get paperboy's music played on the radio and so he has this uncomfortable conversation with him in which this white kid guy this white guy keeps using the n-word in front of him and then he's like oh okay and then after he leaves he asks the black janitor outside does he ever use does he ever call you nigga and he's like no he knows not to do that to me yeah. so there's that like uh it just feels it felt so spot on and sort of encapsulated everything about donald glover and sort of what he's going for with this show yeah i i think that i think it's also it's really nice that he's getting to do this now um, as much as I'm sure like all actors and writers, it's like he probably has been working on a show or a pilot for years and was, you know, when he was 27 and was trying to get something made and, and, it, and it takes forever, particularly when you are not a white dude. Um, but it seems like it's really good that it's happening now because that really is right. Like realizing that's like looking back at certain white friends you had in college mm-hmm. and maybe being the only black kid and being like, I know that there's stuff that at the time I either ignored or didn't really, I wasn't bothered by or um, overlooked in a way that now if someone was doing that, it would be a very different story. Like very different words would be coming out of my mouth than probably did when I was in college. And, but then it's also right. Like choosing your battles and code switching and him figuring out like, okay, I need this dude, but I can't sit here and listen to him say the N word over and over again, like, yeah. and talk about Flowrider and all that, which is probably something that took some time to look back on and think about, right? To like, look back at those kids and be like, was that okay? I feel like that wasn't okay. And I feel like I maybe yeah. acted like it was okay at the time, but it's definitely not. Yeah, I I can totally relate to that as well. Like I I can th- even think of a specific moment that sometimes haunts me. <laughs> but mm-hmm. like I remember in high school when Mean Girls came out, there's a, uh-huh. and I I I love Mean Girls. It's one of my favorite movies. But yeah. there's a scene in which the uh, it's the Asian the Asian students who all speak. I don't even think they specified what kind of nationality the they were. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, they're speaking in, and you see subtitles, and one of them says "nigga please." And I remember mm-hmm. my white friends quoting that over and oh, over, God. and I was like, and I didn't say anything, and I was so ashamed. like, I'm still ashamed of myself for not saying anything at that no. point. But it was just such an awkward moment. I was like, I don't know what to do because like they're every other way they're pretty. They're pretty woke and whatnot like i didn't hang out with with white kids who would generally do that but i feel like right. mean, mean girls just kind of gave them the <laughs> the the i guess the the feeling that they could do that in that moment and because which it was is, yeah yeah which is also kind of like tina Fey's humor a little bit yeah well, she does things like that sometimes <laughs> she does <laughs> i love tina Fey too but you know so yeah sometimes she yeah. Uh, yeah yeah i mean it's funny it's 
I mean, I definitely can remember moments like that. And like, I, I feel you where you're like, I'm ashamed or whatever. But at the same time, it's like you weren't equipped with the tools to help you break those things down. And it's, it is annoying looking back. Like I remember I had a teacher, I had like braids, like box braids. Mm -hmm. And I had a a teacher who came up to me and like started fingering them and just like holding my braids, like close to her eyes, like a white teacher. And she's like, it's so beautiful. And it's, you know, and I was like 16 and I was like, ha, thank you. And I think about that now. And it like makes me like, I have like a visceral reaction Mm -hmm. to how inappropriate and, and wrong that was. But I also like, I didn't understand. I mean, even like, right. The concepts that would make me realize that that's not okay is probably not something I would have been able to fully register when I was 16. Right. Yeah. Cause it's like, it, it just requires like an understanding of history and like of, you know, black bodies and things like that, that like I, I was not, I wouldn't have been able to really get that probably if someone had tried to explain it to me. And so it's only now looking back at it and, and you know, it's, I, I'm waiting. I feel like Blackish does that sometimes, but I'm waiting for this show where it's the experience of like a black kid who is maybe in an environment like that and realizes all of these things are wrong mm-hmm. because it's being written by an adult who understands that those, you know, it's being written by like a 30 year old who's looking back at his time being in school and like sitting through mean girls and everyone's like saying nigga over and over again, but he doesn't get it. He didn't get it then, but he can now write a character where this kid's like, no guys. And like, <laughs> retroactively speak for all of us who had to deal with that when we were kids. Yeah, I would. I agree. I would love for that to happen. And, you know, Hollywood get on that. I don't know who who could write that. But yeah, I guess Kenya Barris is probably the closest, but he hasn't. I mean, there's probably probably like 50 people who could write that who have written that pilot, but just it just hasn't happened. No one. No one wants to buy it. Yeah. I love to talk a little bit about the the jail scene in episode two, Mm -hmm. which it's 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 it, I feel like it, it perfectly hone, homes in on just how weird the show is. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure what to make of it. There's definitely so there's at the end of the first episode, which everyone by now has probably seen the paperboy and Ern find themselves uh, arrested after I don't think they ever specify what exactly happened. We see a gunshot go off, but it, it, it right. appears that he didn't actually shoot anyone, uh, which is why he was able to get out in the first place. But anyway, Paperboy yeah. gets let out early because he is already in the system, ironically, and he can he can go <laughs> <laughs> and someone pays his bail. But for Earn, because he's not in the system yet, he has to stay there longer. And so he's sitting there and he's just surrounded by this cast of characters. And there's a moment where there's a, I think she's trans. They don't really specify. But Mm -hmm. that moment, I wasn't exactly sure what to make of because Earn is basically sitting in between this dude and a trans woman, I believe. And Mm -hmm. they're like talking at each other in, in between and like just pre- pretending he's not there and then another dude says dude that's a man and then it turns into this weird thing mm-hmm. about home like whether he's gay he says he uses the f word mm-hmm. i'm not sure what to make of that or if it, it just I mean, seemed it, it could be just a slice of life maybe but i don't yeah. know if there's something deeper going on i mean i it was interesting it wasn't funny right but there was some it was handled with 
I don't even know how to, it's a complicated scene. I mean, mm-hmm. I liked it because I think that there are probably a lot of people who would have had that same reaction that the the guy who realized that he had been dating a possibly a transgender woman mm-hmm. and, his, and his reaction to that was not good. And it was, and all of the other men in the jail were mocking him and calling him gay. And I think the moment that kind of helped was when you have Ern who kind of mumbles, you know, sexuality is a spectrum. Like it doesn't just because you are into this person doesn't necessarily mean that you're gay. And it's like, that was such a like nerd woke (laughs) person to be like, Hey dude, just, you know, relax. But, um, I mean, when you think about the fact that like, how often do you hear about like transgender women being murdered because some dude realized that she was transgender and, and like beat her up because, and, and right. And that's partly because of their own maybe homo. Like, I don't even know how, exactly to articulate that, but that's them being mad at themselves and it's them being thinking that it makes them less of a man or something, you know, something like that. Right. And, and then they lash out violently. And like, that's a very real thing that happens all the time. And I thought that that was an interesting way to depict that because had that guy discovered that about her when they were alone somewhere, he might've responded very differently. Like he, that's like how these women get murdered. Right. And, and so I thought that that was, it was interesting that like, that's what they chose to, to talk about. Um, and of the many issues that they raised in that, you know, they were talking about, um, mental illness and like, don't put people that are sick in prison and treat them like that. And even like a little bit of police brutality. And it felt like they were throwing out all of these things, but it didn't feel too oversaturated to yeah. me. Yeah, it seemed like they were in a way commenting on this idea of like masculinity being so right, just so, so easily <laughs> disturbed. And I also just thought it was telling the fact that this transgender woman was in a, a presumably a waiting area where everyone was a dude. And I don't know, right. I don't know if they separately, I don't know if they separate they, the men I and the women. Don't, I don't think like that's, and that's another issue, right? That right. like t- transgender women who maybe haven't transitioned in a way that's like acceptable to the government, like will be put in men's prisons and that's incredibly dangerous. And so like that was another kind of that was another thing. Like you had all these people who probably shouldn't be where they were right now. Like you could argue Earn shouldn't have been there. You could argue that the, the, there was a guy in the scene who was in like a hospital dressing gown and was clearly mentally ill. He probably shouldn't be there. The transgender woman probably shouldn't be there, but like the way the system functions, they're just putting them all together. And it's like, that's how we're going to fix this. Yeah, for sure. Well, I could talk about this forever, and I'm very much looking forward to checking out and seeing how the rest of it unfolds. And you can check out Atlanta on FX, and you should all let us know what you think of the show. And thank you so much, Kara. Thanks for having me. But before you go, we have to do our plus or delta segment for the week. So let me know what your plus and delta are. So my plus, it's a good thing that's happened. Yes. Yes. Um, I it's. I feel like it's the topic of the moment, but I'm really proud of all of the NFL players who demonstrated and protested uh, along the lines of what Colin Kaepernick has been doing the last couple of weeks. So there were some players from the Patriots, I think, and Kansas City and who were putting their fists up and kneeling during the national anthem. And Mm. I just really hope that that 
takes off. And I hope that by the end of the season, more players are doing it. And I hope that it bleeds over into other sports. When basketball starts, I know that, you know, a while ago, uh, you had like LeBron James and some players who wore I can't breathe shirts. And I think that I don't think that professional athletes have all the answers in in achieving civil rights victories. But I think that historically black athletes have been a really integral part of civil rights. And I really hope that it continues. Uh, that's a great plus. I'm I'm with you on that one. I don't even like the NFL. I kind of hate them, but I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm very glad to see that something is is happening there. And what is your delta? My delta. I feel like these are all along the same lines. But um, there was a story this week about how the police officer who killed Eric Garner has like basically gotten like pay bumps over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and it's. I don't know that there are many things that are more depressing than that. Like this man was literally being rewarded for murdering that man on camera. And it's, it just feels like such a push and pull every time, like, (laughs) you know, something feel every, you know, you have these NFL players protesting police brutality and that feels really great. And then you read a story like that and it's just like, this feels like we are just trying to like, use a mug to (laughs) remove all the water from the ocean. Like this is just never going to happen, but I don't, I don't want to not to be too depressing, but that, um, that was bad. (laughs) I hope that stops happening. I mean, just like Atlanta, there's the good and they're funny. And then there's the very (laughs) depressing, very real, the very real. Yeah. Well, I'll start with my Delta so that we don't end on a, on a, Uh, but my, my Delta is over the weekend, this is actually Solange related. Mm. She wrote a post on her her site, St. Heron, in which she detailed a incident where she was at a Kraftwerk concert, and they're like a dance band, electronic band. I'm not really familiar with them. I know I'm appearing like a you know a, a nerd or an idiot, uh, but anyway, she wrote about how she went to this concert and loves them. And as soon as she got there, she was there with her husband and her son. And as soon as she got there, she started dancing. And some white woman behind her threw trash at her. And she wrote a very, I think, telling and strong piece about what it's like to be Black and in white spaces and predominantly white spaces and how these things pop up again and again. And just the idea that these women would think to throw trash at her for doing something as simple as dancing. And she even, even before she put it up, she, she writes, I know there are like half of the internet will side with me and the other half will say I shouldn't have been dancing at a concert. And <laughs> indeed that's what happened. And people are very predictable. And it just makes me very sad to have so many people dismiss something that is so such a regular daily part of a black American experience of being in these white spaces. I think anyone who is a person of color in a predominantly white space can speak to the way in which the treatment can just sting and and affect our psyche on a day-to-day basis. Um, So she said it way more eloquently than I did, and she described it more eloquently than I have, but you should check it out. It's worth reading and it's worth considering. Solange is just frequently, she makes excellent points in, in in this arena. And for my plus, uh, this is actually a sort of plug, but um, 
I just did an interview, which is up on the site, on Slate, with Trey Ellis. He is a writer and a a cultural critic. He's most famous, I think, for coining the new black aesthetic back in the late 80s. And he has written an unproduced screenplay that is called Holy Mackerel, and it's about Amos and Andy. And this is this actually will actually be, I think, the first sort of narrative depiction of the Amos and Andy show and the people behind it, Spencer Williams and Alvin Childress. They're having a live reading, actually, The Blacklist, which if you may be familiar with it, The Blacklist is an annual list that is produced and founded by Franklin Leonard, who happens to be a friend of mine. And the, in The Blacklist, they list every year an annual list of the the best unproduced screenplays. This one was not on that list, but it, it was featured on the site for people, producers and the like to look at. And it's been one of the most highly rated scripts on the on the site. And the live reading is happening on Saturday. If you're in LA, you should definitely check it out. And we can put a link to where you can get tickets there. And it stars Jesse Williams, our favorite woke mm. <laughs> young black man at the moment. Uh, it also stars McKelty Williamson, who you may best know from Forrest Gump, as well as David Allen Greer and Yvette Nicole Brown from Community. And so you should definitely check it out. I've read a little bit of the screenplay, and I really would love to actually see the 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 film become the screenplay become a film it just seems like something we're so concerned about positive and negative images and the way trey described it to me is that we don't there's so much about amos and andy we don't know and we deserve to look back on that and it shouldn't be forgotten so those are my pluses and my delta and i again (laughs) i'm I'm gonna go to that i'm in la oh yeah you are in la (laughs) so you should go it's the saturday and it's conveniently just before the the night before the emmys so yeah you should definitely definitely check it out cool well thank you so much again kara and i look forward to having you on the show again thank you this is great Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back. Up next is my interview with Kamala Lopez. But just for a little bit of background first, in 1923, women's rights activist Alice Paul began advocating for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would ensure that women and men would have equal rights across the country. Following decades of stops, starts, and plenty of opposition, such an amendment eventually passed through Congress in 1972, only to be killed after not reaching the necessary number of state ratifications by the agreed-upon deadline in 1982. In the new doc, Equal Means Equal, filmmaker Kamala Lopez seeks to reinvigorate the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment, featuring interviews with such luminaries and influential activists as Gloria Steinem and Patricia Arquette, who is also producer on the film. Lopez outlines the many ways in which women get a raw deal in America. She recently stopped by the studio to chat with me about the film and how we can all do better. Welcome, Kamala. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. So you had roles in the original Total Recall, I Heart Huckabee, Star Trek Voyager. You, as an actress, you have 
been in lots of things over the years. And now you've sort of moved into the more political realm and you've made this film. And I would love for you to just tell me and our listeners a little bit about how you got to this point, how you became a filmmaker and an activist. Sure. Uh, I started when I was seven to act professionally, and I've been acting. Uh, my first uh, major job after I moved to the United States from Venezuela, which is where I grew up, was Sesame Street here in New York City, which I did when I was a kid. Oh, wow. And I've been, you know, a union actor my whole life. That's the only job I've ever had. But as I was going through life, uh, I started to see that the roles that I was getting or being offered or even auditioning for were very narrowly focused. And I felt that they were not representing who I was in any way, which is fine. I'm an actress. I mean, it doesn't have to be me. Mm. But by the same token, never playing anybody that was educated or never playing anybody that wasn't within these like very narrow parameters of either either a crack whore or a gang um, sister of a gang lord or something like that. Mm. I felt like I had to start taking the reins and deciding to make media that I could be in and that others like myself could be in. And I formed Heroica Films in 1995 to create media by, for, and about women and use as many women as possible, both behind the camera and in front of it. Mm -hmm. And while that sounds like, you know, a very noble aspiration, um, the reality is that in Hollywood, that's just, it's laughable. It's laughable. So for the past many, many years, I've made short films because that's something that I could finance on my acting career. Right. Um, And I was able to make my first feature film with a $60,000 grant and a free weekend at a studio. Now, this is a 90-minute film. And, um, you know, so oftentimes when people compare uh, women's work to other people's work, Um, especially in the film business, they never take into account the fact that we are not given the budgets or given any sort of funding at all. And we have to scrap and scrimp and do whatever we can to get to that point. Um, To make this particular film equal means equal, I had to rely first on my mom, who believed in me and thought this was something that needed to be investigated and agreed that it was important enough for me to focus on it. Mm -hmm. And so it took seven years of just begging, borrowing, cajoling, doing Kickstarter, et cetera, et cetera, to get to the point to have a film that does an analysis of American women. And, And to me, that in and of itself is deeply disturbing. I should not be <laughs> I should not be sitting here being the first person having made this type of a film. Yeah, well let's talk a little bit about what the film is. Uh it's a documentary and you are discussing women's rights which like you said it shouldn't have to be that difficult to make a film like that. But based on what you know and what I know about the way the industry is, I imagine that it was, as you said, it was very difficult to get people to get on board with this because of the subject matter. What is What exactly is the manifesto of this film? Who are you speaking to with Equal Means Equal? I'm speaking to you, Aisha, and people like you that are uh, a generation that have been completely lied to about their rights. They have been gaslit, which means they're, they're told that they're crazy if they think they're unempowered or if they think they don't have the same rights as men, to the 80% of Americans that believe that we have equal rights in our Constitution. 
And when I found out that we did not, that women were deliberately and explicitly left out of the Constitution, it really blew my mind. Well, how did how did you find out? Like, what what was this moment? And the the thing you're talking about exactly is the Equal Rights Amendment, which, if you can give a little background on that, that sure. was that failed. It failed to pass about thirty plus years ago. Exactly. At this point. So your generation has never even heard of it. Understand that in most constitutions in the world, in fact, in 187 of them, there is what's called a sex or gender equality provision in the Constitution, which basically says whether you're a man or a woman, you all have equal human and civil rights. America is one of six countries that does not have that. And so I found this out because I was showing my first film, the one I mentioned I made for $60,000 over the weekend. And what was the name of that film again? A Single Woman. It was about first Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin, who was elected to Congress before women had the vote. And that was a feature. It wasn't a documentary. It was was a very strange... uh, It was... A one-woman show that I turned into a feature. Mm-hmm. And it was a combination of uh, theatrical footage, um, found footage, reenactments, et cetera, et cetera. The point being, I was at the Smithsonian Institute showing that film. And there was a woman in the lobby dressed up as a suffragist. And she came walking towards me. And there was something about that moment where you're in this incredibly modern building. And it's right now. And then you see a woman like a ghost coming towards you from the past, and she just walked right up to me, looked me in the eye, and said, I am Alice Paul, and I've come back to haunt you because you've done nothing to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. And I just kind of froze in my tracks because I didn't really understand what she meant by that. Like, Mm -hmm. of course we're equal. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's so weird to me. And then I looked it up and I started to find out more and more about it and I found out, no, what happened was in 1923, okay, we got the vote in 1920. Right. That is literally the only right that we have had added to the Constitution for women, literally. So we got that in 1920. In 1930, Alice Paul wrote the Equal Rights Amendment, which which basically says the United States nor any state shall deny or abridge anybody's rights on the basis of sex. Hmm. It's really not a big ordeal. So she put this forth, and every single year since then, it's been introduced in Congress. And guess how many times they've ever even voted on it? Twice. So they voted on it, and it passed very easily in the Congress. It passed the House. It passed the Senate. The president signed it. And then the the weird thing happened, which is— Sorry, which president was was that? When did that happen? Okay, Nixon. Got it. So all of the presidents uh, since—you know, Carter supported it. Ford supported it. Nixon supported it. It, What happens with a constitutional amendment, which is why it's so confusing— Everybody thought it passed because with a normal law, president signs it, Congress passes it, you're done. Mm. But with a constitutional amendment, it has to go back out to all of the states and each one of the state legislatures, their Congress, has to ratify it. And we have to have three quarters of all of the states agree in order for it to be an actual amendment to the Constitution. Well, guess what? 
we fell three states short of ratification. We had 35. We needed 38. When the deadline expired, and by the way, most other constitutional amendments do not get a deadline put on them. We got a deadline of seven years that then was extended for three more, and we were three states short. And so your film essentially lays out sort of all the ways in which our system is failing women. Um, and, you know, at at one point, as you, as you mentioned now, there's a woman, I think she, it looked like she was speaking maybe in Congress or in the House, I couldn't tell, but she talked about how she blamed herself and her generation for not educating the younger generation, my generation, I guess, about yeah. the fact that the ERA even was a thing or <laughs> does, doesn't exist. Right. And so how do you agree with, well, it sounds like you agree with her. What do you think needs to happen now in order, aside from this movie, like what do you think needs to happen to bridge that disconnect between the older generation and the younger generation? I don't think we necessarily need to bridge any gaps here mm-hmm. or we, we, it would be great if we could have a cross-generational movement of girls and women working together for something that is the single most important thing that all of them need. But that's not necessarily necessary. The older generations know what the ERA is. The problem is they think it already passed. I'm interested in the people that have no idea that they don't have the same rights. I go to colleges a lot. I go to high schools a lot. And for me, motivating your generation is more important because it's all going to fall on you. Just to switch gears a little bit, via you use a lot of, within the film, you use a lot of uh, diagrams and imagery. The one that sticks out to me, I think we see several times, are the men, one sort of male cartoon and then female cartoons uh, adjusted by by race. So you have women make 70 Eight cents to the dollar, and but then when you when you also have a black woman, it's a little bit less. Sixty-eight, Latina woman, a little bit less, and a lot less. Latinas dropped to forty-four cents on the white male dollar in Los Angeles County. Wow, and I mean the film doesn't get go too far into sort of the intersectionality of this issue between race and gender. Aside from that, so I'm curious as to what sort of how do you think that women of color and you as well are a woman of color how they get an even rawer end of the deal than oh than yeah white oh no do. we're at the bottom of the barrel we don't we're invisible you know this is a dangerous situation for women of color this isn't um like oh you know i mean for some i talk to white women sometimes that are making three hundred thousand dollars and they go there's no problem i make more money than all the guys in my office and i'm like really so there's no problem but what about the woman in georgia that has to take three buses and quit her job to go get a pap smear do you care at all about her do you have you actually said that to women before? Oh, yeah. yeah. I say it all the time. How does, that, how does that usually go? I don't know. I usually am gone by the end of my sentence. Interesting. <laughs> what, like, what sort of, in, in doing your research, like, how, first of all, how did you figure out who you wanted to speak to? To begin, I, you have Gloria Steinem in there. Uh, you have lots of congresswomen and, and friends of yours. What, I mean, this was a seven-year-long ordeal. <laughs> So I realized yeah. that, that there's a lot that went into just it. Just so much. And so many people left out. It's funny when I read, like, they go, just so many people in there. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, over 50% of those people are not in there anymore. Mm. Like, I 
had to educate myself because just like everybody else in this country, I had no idea what the big picture looked like. Mm -hmm. I knew one thing. I knew that, oh, rape kits aren't getting tested or I knew Title IX funding is, you know, going down or violence against women is happening and the shelters are closing down. But what I didn't know, you cannot parse these things out. That is where we get in trouble. That's where we have semantical arguments with people that want to tell us that Asian women between the ages of 22 and 28 actually make 8% more than white men. This is the kind of crap that people try to drag us into that we cannot permit. The thing about the, the question I had while watching the film, if we were to pass the Equal Rights Amendment... How much would that change things? Because when I look at voter ID laws and how legislators and and Congress folks have found all these different loopholes or ways to read the the text that is is there for the the voting rights in the Constitution, I wonder. Well, how much is this actually going to help? What like they, people will find ways to to work around them and still take our rights in in, in sneaky yet legal according to certain jurisdictions, ways. The Equal Rights Amendment is a game changer. There is nothing comparable to it. It supersedes all laws and statutes. It is not reversible. The, the, re, the things that you're talking about, the things we see where Scott Walker rescinds the Equal Pay Act or so-and-so decides that, no, let's not pay women anymore in this state, that will be illegal. They won't be able to do it. The whole point that I'm making is we cannot treat women's human rights as a state issue. It is not a state issue. It is a national issue. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is a federal amendment. The federal amendment will protect us. It won't be immediate, but I can pretty much guarantee you that we will see progress in all of the areas mentioned in the film, rape, pregnancy discrimination, domestic violence, the pay gap, international women's rights, on and on and on. We will start to see major changes as soon as we sign that because we have wonderful female attorneys like Lenora Lapidus at the ACLU, like Noreen Farrell at Equal Rights Advocates. And as soon as they have that in the Constitution to point to, they can go after these people and say, hey, that's a violation of our civil rights. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's convincing, I think. Uh, I, I guess I just still, maybe it's the cynical part of me that, mm. that feels as though there are just so many ridiculous things that are happening to women, especially when I think of the abortion rights and things like that, that we, we find, even though we have um, Roe v. Wade and things like that, they still... <laughs> I don't know. I'm just But those are cases. Remember, true. those are cases. That's true. We're not talking about cases. I am not interested in laws and statutes. Yeah. I am completely uninterested in them because I've just spent seven years looking at the crock of crap that all of these laws are. The Equal Pay Act? Please. Swiss cheese. The Violence Against Women Act? Ineffectual. Pregnancy Discrimination Act? It's a joke. The only solution is to put this in the Constitution. How how do you see men factoring into this in terms of, for lack of a better word, allyship or and and what like what can men do? Because I yes, women obviously we should do something. We should speak up, and who if no one's going to if you don't speak up for yourself, who will? But wh how what do you say to men 
the men in our lives about this? I say to the men in our lives that the Equal Rights Amendment is not a women's rights amendment. It's an equal rights amendment. It will help men, too, in the areas of family and children. And then let's speak more broadly. I believe that at least 95 to 99 percent of men are men of goodwill and men that were they properly educated by watching the film, they will feel extremely uncomfortable with what is going on with their lovers, wives, mothers, daughters, and friends. The fact that this ERA did not, we, you didn't know about it. I haven't really thought about it. I'm sure many women haven't. And I feel like that is just a larger extent of that sort of erasure that we've seen of women from history and making history. I'd like to I guess, pivot a little bit. Patricia Arquette is, she's a friend of yours and also she's a producer on the film. And she also appears in the film for uh, a little bit. And she, a couple years ago when she won the Oscar, she made that very famous speech. Yes, thank uh, God. Seven laws since then because of that speech. Yeah. Uh, The speech uh, she gave at the Oscars was talking about gender equality and specifically with the, the gender wage gap. And you both work in Hollywood and you've seen firsthand and you know firsthand what that is like. Since she's given that speech, have you have you noticed any changes within the industry about the way people talk about the gender wage gap? Or, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence jumped in there. Right. Taylor Schilling's jumping in there. Everybody's jumping in there because and look at what happened to Roger Ailes. Well now, yeah that's Amazing. Mm. I really believe that all of these things are starting to happen because we're talking about it. I hope it's not just women talking about it within the industry. I hope it's also the men. Have you talked about it with any men in the industry or? You know, uh, <laughs> you know, as I said, one on one, men are great. Right. I've found that one-on-one, I can convince pretty much 100% of them. But then collectively, somehow, it seems to fall apart. And I honestly don't know if that's because we haven't abdicated our responsibility to corporations and given them actually more power than the human species. Because a corporation is simply a group of humans together making a decision to do something, but we seem to act like they're the boss of mm-hmm. us. And I think men are trapped in that mentality. So if if it's if the bottom line is going to be affected, they will throw us under the bus any time of day. For my final question, which I ask all my guests, because this is, I mean, this is a show about representation and your film is very much about representation and getting women to recognize that we need more representation. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to ask you, when was the last time you felt as though you saw yourself on screen. You saw something that related to you or you, you saw something that you could identify with personally on a deep level. Beasts of the Southern Wild. Interesting. My favorite movie probably of all time. What, what about that? Like, how did you connect I with it? I don't know. I just, just don't know. That that's our country. Mm. That's our country, you guys. If anybody hasn't seen Beasts of the Southern Wild... It's a beautiful movie. And haunting. It's haunting. haunting. I'm haunted by that movie. And people that are living under those circumstances today in the richest nation on earth. It's not okay. Well, 
Yes, I completely agree that everyone should see Beasts of the Southern Wild starring Kovanjane Wallace with a lot of uh, Hurricane Katrina imagery. Just, yes, it's beautiful and haunting and you should definitely see it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Aisha, for doing this. All right, y'all, that's all for today. Thanks again to Kara for parsing through Atlanta with me and to Kamala for enlightening us on the ERA. You can find Equal Means Equal on iTunes now, and you'll also find a link to some of the many things we discussed today in the show notes. Please continue to rate us on iTunes if you love what you're hearing. We'd love to hear from you. Also, there's never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary and for a limited time, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of Slate Podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash plus. And Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. The music you are listening to right now is performed by the awesome San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Thank you.